Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. On Tuesday, we talked all about preserving our culture and our heritage through our food, which, of course, includes the plants we grow in our gardens. Today, I'm joined by Marion Whitehead, who is just as passionate about plants and their stories as I am, maybe even more so. I mean, I've not been known to write poetry about my plants, but Marion has, and she is uniquely qualified to do so, since she is immersed in plants, both native and exotic, in her work at the Blue Mountain Botanic Garden in New South Wales, Australia. This was such a fun conversation. We talked about her journey into botany at a very young age that was sidetracked into television marketing for a while before leading her back to horticulture through her love of plants and their stories. And there are certainly some interesting stories. Join me and dig a little deeper into the stories behind plants with Marion Whitehead. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. Marion, thank you so much for coming on the Just Grow Something podcast. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So you are the senior horticulturist in the nursery at the Blue Mountain Botanic Garden at Mount Toma. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Mount Toma. Yeah, New South Wales. Yes. Yep. That's right. That's the state in Australia. In Australia. In Australia. I know. I love it. My 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 second international guest. I love it. <laughs> oh, I'm so, so excited. Yeah. You had sort of a roundabout way of getting to that position that took you from studying botany and history at university, but then into television marketing and then back into horticulture. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Yeah, of course. The um, very logical <laughs> route of um, botany into TV, into horticulture. Um, both my parents are science teachers. So I grew up, um, biology teachers actually. So I grew up in the bush in um, Sydney and um, my mum, my whole life would take me out and show me all the different plants in the bush and their different adaptations. And that was something that we always did together. And so I was always into the natural world. Our property backed onto the bush and my mum would always take me out to show me the trigger flowers, dilidiums were her favourite thing to show me every year when they'd flick up and hit their pollinators and cover them in pollen. So I was always really into the natural world and bushwalking and all those sorts of things. And so um, I followed in my mum and my grandmother. My grandmother studied the same botany degree as me and so did my mum at Sydney University. Uh, And then I did history as well because I'm interested in why things do what they do and, you know, the cultural ideas behind them as well. And then when I finished university there, 
I actually applied for a role at the herbarium at Sydney Botanic Gardens, which I didn't get. And then a lot of the science jobs at the time were for tobacco companies. And I didn't really want to go down um, the route of working in tobacco. Um, so I looked at all the things that I like doing and I thought, do you know what I really like doing is watching TV. Um, so, <laughs> so I applied for a role in, um, in television, in research, um, and I didn't get that job, but I guess I talked my head off so much that they put me in marketing. So I worked at one of Australia's we have three television stations in Australia. Um, so I worked at one of the three commercial stations for a few years and I organised events and it was um, all the glitz and glamour that I fully thought TV would be. It was very fun and exciting, but I always just longed to be working with plants and be outside, I think, was the main driver. So a few years into my television career, I live in Sydney, right in the city of Sydney, and I saw a role at the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens as an apprentice at Mount Tomar, which is a couple of hours outside of Sydney, and Mount Tomar itself is very remote. It's about 40 minutes drive from anything at all, and I thought that's where I want to work, so I applied for this apprentice role. Um, my parents were very supportive, and my whole family was very supportive, but I feel like it was a sort of wild left turn out of television but also a return to something that I really wanted to do and um and I got the job and it was just the best decision I think that I'd ever made because I in between actually leaving TV and getting the job at uh, Mount Tomar I fell pregnant so the first day that I arrived on site as an apprentice um, I think I was 14 weeks pregnant and so I had to <laughs> sort of tell this new group of people um, that I'd be leaving them in a few months. And so I sort of grew steadily more pregnant, trying to learn how to um, be a horticulturalist on a very remote mountain where I was always digging up funnel web spiders, which are the most dangerous spiders in the world. And um, one day I looked around and it it started to snow. Um, it doesn't snow in Sydney, but it snows out at Mount Tomar up in the higher regions so we're about a thousand meters above sea level and um just heavily pregnant sitting in a garden bed in the snow and it just felt like the absolute best decision I'd ever made so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so from there I've just stayed at Mount Tomar and I progressed into a horticulturalist role after finishing my apprenticeship and I looked after the North American woodland and the heath and heather uh, in the garden. And then from there, I we had some really bad bushfires in 2019, 2020, and they actually came into our garden. The Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens at Mount Tomar is a parcel of cultivated gardens. And then we're one of the only botanic gardens in the world that is in a World Heritage listed national park. So Tomar sits within the Greater Blue Mountains National Park and we also own 100 or so hectares of bushland surrounding the garden. So most of that burnt in the fires um, and then came into the garden and into my little woodland and the heath and heather I looked after. So that burnt. And then after that, I moved into the, uh, the nursery as the senior horticulturalist of nursery because my area was a bit singed and it was a good time to yeah. bail out. 
<laughs> so. Oh my gosh. So in moving into the nursery, did you get a chance to help start the plants that would then be replanted back out into the area that you had been working in that had been singed? I did actually. Yeah, with some of them. So we had a big bank of, um, which I think is just was one of the best winter displays you have at the garden, this uh, huge bank of Erica canaliculatas, which are quite tall, really fluffy, frothy, covered in pink flower Erica's, which sat at the bottom of the garden and just sort of waved gently in the wind, like almost like this upright, frothy pink seaweed. I can't describe them. They were beautiful. So I took some cuttings off. Like there was a tiny bit of one of them that wasn't burnt. The rest were completely destroyed. So I took cuttings from those and struck them and propagated a few things from around the garden. That bed still hasn't been renovated and redone, but I did. I took some Edmondia cuttings and some um, Erica serenthoides. So yeah, it was a nice sort of circular thing to be able to propagate things to go back into those beds that I had put so much love and care into. Yeah. How devastating that must have been to see what you had cared so much for just completely toasted to the ground. I mean, not to mention the entire destruction that was around it, but the fact that it kind of came into your area and just knocked it out must have been absolutely devastating. Oh, it was wild. And I think one of the things that was really, really difficult about it was that not everyone understands how much love and care you put into plants. I think because they're not sentient, people don't seem to understand like the woodland that I looked after. I write a lot as well. So I've written all these like sonnets about how much I love the springtime ephemerals in there. Like I'm very emotional and sooky about plants at the best of times. So we could see the fire coming for literally three weeks. It was on the horizon, just a big pall of smoke. And so we sort of knew it was coming. And when we knew it was really close, I, I remember going into the woodland and cleaning out all the leaves from in between the rocks. And when I went in after the fire had hit, I realized how futile that was because the compost had actually burnt. So oh, wow. there was nothing that, you know, really could have been done. It was such an intense fire that we've just never seen the likes of before. But I sort of had to explain to people if I worked at a zoo and I looked after chimpanzees, it felt the same way that it would feel if my chimpanzees had burnt because I have such emotional connections to particular plants and to see them gone or not know if they'll come back. So it was summer and all of the woodland had leafed up, but it all defoliated from the radiant heat. A lot of it wasn't even burnt, but just the heat coming in from the bush on the other side of the road, they all dropped their leaves. So I was like frantically Googling like how much sugar budget the trees have and how many times can they put on leaves without killing themselves by expending this huge resource and then doing it again. And we'd had years of drought before. So I was very worried that a lot of the trees in there didn't have the resources to leaf up again. So it was a waiting game to see what lived and what died. Yeah. So I would assume that the majority of those plants that are out there are perennials that come back every season and they're not replanted. So how, what percentage do you think has actually recovered and, and come back after that? Cause it's been now what, uh, almost three years, almost three years. So, okay. um, a huge percentage of them came back. So a lot of the really good stuff in that area is springtime ephemerals. So they were sort of underground and just, safe under there I guess and then come spring there was 
was it spring or was it summer or it was autumn a lot of spring ephemerals came up in autumn I think because so many of the trees defoliated that there were little hepaticas coming up that shouldn't have been up I think maybe even a trillium or two came up really early in autumn so I think they were all very confused about what time of year it was but it was almost nice to see them sort of popping up to say like hi <laughs> I didn't I'm die just here. so you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh wow <laughs> yeah so that was good you you mentioned you know one of your majors in school was history so not only are you a fellow plant nerd interested in the science of plants but you also have an interest in the historical and cultural importance of those plants why do you think it's important for us to understand the stories behind plants? I think it's important, probably not so much for the plant nerds, because we can love them for their weird adaptations or tiny little details about them. But I think particularly being in a botanic garden, one of the, the main thing we do is educate the public and try and engage them in plants. And the things in our garden that have stories are the things that people flock to and they're not always the most beautiful things but for example the wallamai pine that we have willemia nobilis is a genus of some of pine it's a conifer but it was found in the bushland near our botanic gardens i think 30 years ago now and it was thought to be extinct it was seen in the fossil record millions of years ago but it was thought to be extinct and um a hiker david noble found it and they discovered that it was this plant that they called it a pinosaur which just hadn't been seen for millions of years and that's the thing that everyone asks about when they come into the garden and I personally don't think it's like the most beautiful plant in the world but it has a story and it engages people and it makes them so excited about it so if that can be the gateway drug the story of you know one exciting plant or an exciting plant discovery into plants, then I think that's why we need to tell these cool stories about plants. This episode of the Just Grow Something podcast is sponsored by me. Yes, me and my merch shop. You can support this show by heading over to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash shop and checking out the fabulous garden-themed merchandise going on over there. I've got options with the podcast logo, plus the recently released spring collection, and even some fun stickers. Support the show and show off your love of gardening by going to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash shop. The link is in the show notes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The podcast that I do is mainly, you know, vegetable gardening. We touch on other gardening and stuff too, but it's about growing. And and when we do crop-specific episodes, I always touch on the ethnobotanical and historical information behind each one of those plants. And to my way of thinking, it's 
if you're going to grow something, then you probably ought to know, even if it's not something that you're super interested in, but you ought to know where it came from because it also helps Absolutely. you, well, also helps you in the cultivation of that plant, you know? So if you know it's origin story, for example, you know, then you know, okay, well, this is the type of care that it's going to need if it's not native to my area. But I'm assuming that you're dealing mainly with native species. We're not actually, we're mostly an exotics garden. Um, we have a small native section, but it's cool climate, higher altitude plants. So it's a lot of exotics and a lot of that exact thing, learning about where they're from so you can know how to care for them. And you're right, usually in that research comes all the exciting cultural and historical stuff that goes with them. What are some of your favorite plants in, in your collection there? Oh, that's a hard one. I think it's like picking a favorite child, the, right? <laughs> it is. It depends on the time of year, but I have um, a big soft spot for camellias. So we have a little bit of a tropical camellia collection going um, in our garden, even though we're quite high and quite cool. We have a glasshouse tropical camellia collection. Not something that people usually think of when they think of camellias. Um, tropical. Uh, the tropical ones also have these yellow flowers, which I just find such like a, a weird spin on camellias are everywhere in Australia. Growing up, you know, you can't go past the suburban backyard without a big glossy camellia. But um, the tropical camellias and yellow flowering camellias have really um, captured my heart. Actually, um, this is a very sad looking camellia flower, but I, I brought this. <laughs> this is Camellia amplexicolis. Camellia amplexicolis is from Vietnam. Look at its fleshy oh, little wow. petals. And it's yeah. a very, it's, sorry, it's a bit sad and a bit windburton. But, um, and still beautiful. <laughs> it is. It's really important in um, Tet celebrations in Vietnam. And Camellia amplexicolis is one of only two tea species that only exist in cultivation. So, Amplexic, Camellia amplexicolis and Frank Linnaeus are the only two tea species that don't exist in the wild anymore. Amplexicolis was discovered in 1919 or thereabouts. Um, and in 2018, um, it was decided that it was extinct in the wild. And so I love knowing the history behind these things and the story behind these things because that makes them important and if you can ignite in the public's imagination that something's important, then you can work better to conserve it. And in Australia, because we don't have petal blight here, it's now illegal to import camellias from anywhere in the world, but also from Vietnam and mm. China. And so the camellias that we have in Australia now are all that we will ever have. So for the yellow flowering camellias and the tropical camellias, which I am so fond of, um, it's really important for us to propagate them, to have them in botanic gardens collections and to share them with other gardens and private gardens to make sure that we have them in perpetuity and we don't lose them. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and see, I don't think people think about that type of stuff when, I mean, we <laughs> we usually have the, you know, opposite effect here in the States where it's not so much that because we don't have a disease, you know, you're not allowed to, to bring anything in. It, it Kind of from state to state, but not necessarily within the entire country, we end up with every invasive species you could possibly think of because 
somebody brings something in that was exotic from somewhere else and plants it in their garden and then it just escapes cultivation and it gets out into the wild and it is everywhere i've got um, a very invasive japanese honeysuckle that um, yes. has propagated just everywhere here in the state of missouri and in oh. other places and you know, we're on a 40 acre farm. There wasn't a single one of those, nor was there a single calorie pear when we moved here. And 10 years in, all of a sudden I was looking around and here were these calorie pears and these Japanese honeysuckle and they were just everywhere. They're beautiful to look at, but they take over yeah. the native species that are here. And of course that disrupts the natural yeah. flow of things out here with the wildlife and everything else. And it's just sort of this vicious cycle. So I think that's another reason why understanding the history behind plants, good or bad, is very important, you know, whether it's in a, a, a vegetable garden or in an ornamental garden. Oh, absolutely. And it's sort of doubly as important for us um, at the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens because we are in a World Heritage Wilderness. So we have to be so careful with what we have on site and how often things seed and how far they spread and what spreads them because we don't want to be at fault for letting something loose in the national park because the national park that surrounds the gardens is such a pristine wilderness. Like I said, we found uh, the wall of my pine in there that hadn't been seen for a million years and no one had been into that gully to see it. So it's um, it's very untouched and it's very protected. And so it's really important to protect it and keep on top of what will be weeds and what new diseases are coming in. And that's something as well that um, we have a really good pathology department at the Botanic Gardens and we work closely with them to keep an eye on what new pathogens are around and try and avoid them getting into our collection and into the ground and out into the world. So other than the Pinosaurus, um, what yeah. is another, another, what's another one of your favorite sort of, uh, stories that goes along with one of your, one of your plants or one of your collections? Um, I'd have to say we have a big rhododendron collection. So one of my favorite, do you know about mad honey? No, no. Okay. Well, um, rhododendrons have a particular toxin in them. I'm not sure what, I think it's like gray anotoxin. Anyway, there's a toxin in rhododendron flowers. And when bees forage those flowers and uh, make honey from them, it's called mad honey. Um, I know it's used in places like Nepal as like a mild, maybe almost hallucinogenic, but it has been used before. I think the best story is in Roman days, Pompey uh, was marching troops through somewhere in Europe. And whoever, I think it was Mithridates, he was marching on Mithridates and his dudes and they collected all of this mad honey from these bees that had been making honey from rhododendron flowers and they left it out for Pompey's men to find and Pompey's men found it on the side of the road and thought free honey sweet and they ate it and then they got disoriented they started fainting and then Mithridates men came in and killed them all that's, I mean, it's a bit morbid, but I do love that. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that story. <laughs> See, that's the kind of stuff that gets people interested in plants. <laughs> it absolutely is. All the death and destruction that they can um, enact. Oh, that's amazing. I love it. So you're working at the 
Blue Mountain Botanic Garden. You said that you actually had applied originally to work at the Botanic Garden in Sydney at the National Herbarium. And now the Herbarium has actually moved to the other of the trio of botanic gardens in your group, the Australian Botanic Garden at Mount Annan. Is that how it's pronounced? Yes, Mount that's Annan. right. That's yeah. right. Well done. Mount so, Annan. Thank you. Thank you. So um, <laughs> the, I, I'm fascinated by this because the, the National Herbarium is a collection of over a million plant specimens and home to a plant bank that goes along with it. That is just such a collection. That is so amazing to me. What can you tell me about that? Um, it's very cool. They do. They have 1.4 million specimens at the herbarium. Uh, they've digitized 1 million of them. So that's huge. Uh, I think that was a massive project. So they're all, I think, accessible online. So the specimens they have are mostly pressed ones, but they're also, um, they have some in alcohol and the herbarium was originally at the Sydney gardens, but it wasn't the ideal position for it. Uh, Mount Annan is a lot drier than Sydney and where the Sydney herbarium was, it was right on Sydney Harbour. So I think it was a lot moister, um, but they've created this huge new state-of-the-art facility. It's beautifully designed so our state flower is tilopia which is like a waratah um, and it's designed to look like a waratah seed pod and there's six different vaults in there and each vault is painted a color that is a color that a seed pod of the waratah goes in different states of maturation oh, which neat. I just think is very cool yeah and very clever a lot of thought went into that wow yeah Oh, it's so cool. But they have, um, they also have some, I know they're probably not very well known anywhere but Australia, but Banks and Salander are two of our most important early plant collectors. So when Captain Cook came out to Australia, he brought Banks and Salander with him. And so they have at the herbarium a whole collection of Banks and Salander pressed plants, which for me is very exciting. Um, so one of our most beautiful natives is the Banksia named for Banks and then they have a whole lot of type specimens there um, and then the seed bank so they're in the process of collecting and storing seed from all of our native plants to protect them into the future all those species so it's really cool it's a really exciting thing to have as part of the organization that I work for. Yeah, that's amazing. So the, all the the plant this plant specimens that are in the herbarium are these are these international or is it strictly Australian plants? So it's it's not just strictly Australian ones. Okay. I think when whenever people collect here and overseas, um, here we tend to keep one specimen at the herbarium, send one to somewhere like Canberra, and then we have an exchange program with overseas herbaria and we exchange with them. So I think there are a fair few exotics in there as well. So is this does it go for the plant bank as well? Where is that is that the idea behind the seed bank and the plant bank is to make sure that you have specimens that could be reproduced if necessary? Yes, it okay. absolutely is. So I think just safeguarding them, especially climate change and the way the world seems to be rapidly <laughs> changing how everything happens. Yeah. Um, it's so important to have seeds banked so that 
if and when we lose things, we can resurrect them. And I can only imagine that there's stories behind every single one of those that showed up there, where it came from, who collected it, what other seed bank, plant bank, herbarium it came from. Is all that documented with, with all of those specimens? Absolutely, it is. We have um, a team of people who their entire job is to go out and collect seed and specimens and those sort of things just in the Australian wilderness, which just must be the coolest job in the world. So they're out there every day uh, searching. I think sometimes it's really hard because we have a lot of ephemeral species that only come up in really specific conditions. So I think it's a big waiting game to collect and bank those seeds. We had after the bushfires, there's a fire ephemeral called Actinotus forsythii, which is a little flannel flower, but a little pink one that never comes up unless there's been severe fire and then pretty good rain. So they have come out all over the Blue Mountains National Park a couple of years ago. And I think that was one of those sort of ones that to collect the seed for it, you know, it exists, um, but you just have to wait for the right conditions and then keep an eye on where it comes up and then wait for it to mature and then swoop and collect it. So that's amazing. Amazing. Is there anything else that you can think of that we didn't touch on that you want to say about what you do and, you know, the stories behind plants? Oh, I think that's everything at the moment. I'm sure as soon as I go, I will think of all of my favorite plant stories ever. Um, one of the other things that I do actually love, if I don't know the history of a plant necessarily, I'm really into the names of plants. That's another thing that I find can really draw people into being interested in plants. I'm particularly interested with my love of history in um, Greek and Roman and mythological plant name origins. So yeah. that's one of the things that I, every time I see a plant name that I think, oh, I'm pretty sure that's got a good story behind it. That sounds Greek. I look it up and then I um, bore everyone around me. Members of the public, I pop up in the garden. <laughs> out of garden beds oh were you looking at this did you want to know about the name of it <laughs> no one does <laughs> oh I would in fact I just did a a, a a pepper episode this week and I was talking about you know the botanical names and stuff and how capsicum came from the Greek for kapos which means to bite and how that relates to the capsaicin and the bite that we get yep. from it when we eat so I am all about that I love that <laughs> oh I love it there's um there's this Disa uniflora, which is a South African plant. Um, and I, I'm really interested in that one, actually, because usually plants are Greek and Roman mythological names. So like Narcissus was, mm. you know, mm -hmm. the original narcissist who drowned in a puddle looking at his own reflection. Um, right. But this Disa uniflora was a Swedish, highborn Swedish woman who, um, Disa, who um the king of the land was planning to have population control I think they were just overrun with people so he was going to kill the old and the frail and um Deesa just wasn't having it and she sent a message to the king saying you can't do this I can advise on how we'll sort out the population and um the king said all right you can you can decide on not killing everyone if you show up here clothed but unclothed um, not on a sled or a horse or a boat or a cart. And so he'd laid down this gauntlet of this like impossible task that Deesa had to complete in order to not kill all the old and frail people in the kingdom. And so she had a good think and um, she 
uh, tethered two men to a sled and she got a billy goat and she put one leg on the billy goat and one leg on the sled and she dressed herself in a net. So she was neither dressed nor undressed and she wasn't on a sled and she wasn't pulled by dogs. And she showed up and the king said, all right, I won't kill everyone. Um, and Disa Uniflora, its um, dorsal petal is netted. And that's why they've named it Disa for this. <laughs> love it. Oh my God. For this dressed but undressed princess. But just those stories, I love them. So that's one of my big that's things that gets me into plants is I will find the ugliest plant, but if it has a good name, it will be one of my favorites. Absolutely. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Marion, this was such a fun conversation. If people want to know more about you, what you do, um, and more about the, the Blue Mountain Botanic Garden, where can they find more information? You can find out on our website. I often write blogs for the website. You can look up my um, name in the blog section. I think there is actually one in there that I've written on Greek and Roman mythological plant names. Well, I'm going to look that one up right away. You can find us at the bluemountainsbotanicgardens.com.au. Um, and that's where you can see our beautiful collection and perhaps read about plant names and get to love plants a bit more. I love it. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. See, I'm not the only one who finds the backstory of plants to be important. We don't all need to study them or even be as excited about them as Marion and I are. But having a general knowledge of where the plants that we have in our garden came from is absolutely a good thing. And like Marion said, if unique stories like the ones that she shared inspire more people to take the plant kingdom more seriously, well then we're all going to benefit from that for sure. Thanks for joining me today. Don't forget, we're coming up on our 100th episode of this podcast, and I want to collaborate with you. Leave me a message at the link in the show notes or reach out to me on the website at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com or on Facebook or on Instagram. Let me know who you are, where you garden, and what is the one thing that you wish you knew before you started gardening. I can't wait to share all the answers together for the 100th episode. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and I will talk to you again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to Patreon.com slash JustGrowSomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon.